creative Trinitarian lead-in man. Here we are in Hebrews 2020. Here we are seeing Jesus. Here we are in Increment 133, another good psalm, by the way, Psalm 133, speaking of archpriests, that one being Aaron. But this is Increment 133, and we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 5 in this increment. Father, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our minds and hearts to receive insight and to be enlightened as to the riches of glory that we have in Christ Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor. May we see in him our own predestinated destiny. And may we be conformed a little more into his image today as a result of this message as by the Spirit of the Lord, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews 5.7, we'll pick up here where we left off in increment 132. So we want to look again at Hebrews 5.7 and onward. In the days of his flesh, meaning during his earthly life, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears, to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience. Although he was the son, that's a reference back to Hebrews 1-2, the son, the eternal son, the radiance of the father's splendor, the very substance of God's character, the character and stamp of God's substance, the one whom God appointed heir of all things, the one who's upholding everything by the word of his power, carrying all things to a conclusion in which history will be redeemed, all that, though he was the son, he learned this obedience through suffering since he was declared the source of age-abiding salvation. He became, by his obedience, I'm doing a little bit of modification here, he learned this obedience through suffering, and by it, <clears throat> as a result of this obedience through suffering, he became the source of age-abiding salvation to all who obey him. And then, verse 10, <coughs> he was declared by God, excuse me, archpriest, and you'll note that he's not just called priest this time, as he was in 5.6, but the writer, the PT, pulls an interpretive move under the Holy Spirit and says archpriest, not just priest, as he did in 5.6, and as it says in Psalm 110.4, the Greek text being 109.4, but an archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. Now, William Lane, one of my commentators that I keep reading along with this exegesis, along with his Hebrews 5.10, his commentary, he says regarding the word designated, which is the verb prosagoruen, 
from the word prosagoge, the verb contains the idea, he says, of a formal and solemn ascription of an honorific title. He refers to Moulton and Howard's grammar. And then he says, the use of the verb with the meaning to address, hail, salute, in the sense of an acclamation, finds illustration in the papyri, which are other sources of Greek text found in Moulton and Milligan. So he's referring to this being called a great archpriest by God as an acclamation, as a salutation, as a salute, and as the conferring of a formal and solemn honor to the Son. So we see Jesus as the source of salvation. For the founder of salvation to be perfected or completed as the source and cause of salvation required that he suffer. This was the decree of the one, quote, because of whom and through whom all exist, all things exist, Hebrews 2.10. This was the decree, the will, the intention of God because of whom and through whom all things exist. The obedience of the Son learned through suffering, that's emathen af on epathen, obedience learned through suffering, resulted in age-abiding salvation to all who obey him. We recognize that, meaning ultimately all of humanity, but you'll have to see the previous increments where we dealt with that, and probably future ones too. The Son's becoming the immediate source and cause of salvation is synchronized with his designation as archpriest for the age by God the Father. God the Father, who says to all the angels and to all the world, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, to the Son, says, you are a priest for the age like Melchizedek. This is the conferring of the honor on the one whom we see crowned with glory and honor, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10 goes back, of course, to Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is the Greek text of Psalm 8, 5 through 7. The PT rightly interpreted this oracle. Now what we have here is an oracle, which is a saying of God to the Son. You are a priest for the age. Forever is okay because we've explained before the age is an endless age. However, the question was asked in increment, increment 21 a long time ago, will there ever be a time when Jesus won't have to act as high priest and therefore keep making intercession for us. Now, before you answer yes or no, consider 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. There will be a time when Jesus, who has reigned until all his enemies are placed under his feet, is going to submit everything over which he's reigned to the Father. He will also submit himself to the Father, that God may be all in all. Now, when God is all in all, 
will there be the need of the intercession of a great archpriest? Now, that's a question. I want to leave that in the air because questions invite the exercise of our faculties. They invite us to be attentive. They invite us to be intelligent. They invite us to question. They invite us to inquiry. They invite us to wonder and to inquire and to reflect and to deliberate and conclude and to make some pretty heavyweight decisions on the basis of those conclusions. But Oracle is also accompanied by an oath this is extremely important to the whole of Hebrews or the whole argument of Hebrews at least from 5.10 to 6.20 because you see the whole section of Hebrews that we're going into soon from 5.11 really we'll say 5.10 because that's where the reference is to the archpriest all the way to 6.20 we have again the same reference to Jesus as the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek. So these bracket a, a whole section which we're going to enter into now with fear and trembling because it's the hardest part to interpret of the book of Hebrews, I think. But I think we're ready for it. So the very declaration or salute offered by the Father to the Son and the honorific ascription of him to be priest forever after the order of Melchizedek or priest for the age just like Melchizedek was an oracle but the oracle was preceded by an oath and so we have in Psalm 110.4 you can go there or if you have your Septuagint and you're really sharp you can go to 109.4 because it says the Lord swore Yahweh swore this is referring to the father now the Father swore and will never change his mind. He will not retract this. He will not revoke this oracle. You are a priest for the age like Melchizedek. Some people say according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll, we'll deal with that down the road. Whether it's after the order of as if it's indicating an order of priesthood or whether it simply means just like Melchizedek. I'm inclined to think the latter. But here we have... Jesus, the source of salvation, the founder of salvation, declared, designated to be great archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek. So again, the PT rightly interpreted this oracle as to be supported by a divine oath, and that it is to be God's designation of Jesus, particularly as archpriest. This oracle of God, which also could be classed as a promise. When God says, you're a priest forever, that's a promise too. This oracle of God, found in Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, was preceded and accompanied by an oath. I can't emphasize that strongly enough. For Psalm 110.4 says, the Lord swore an oath and will never change his mind. You are a priest for the age like Melchizedek. Swore an oath is really opens up not only a word, but a word group that's deployed in Hebrews to great effect. Swore an oath is the verb omnumi. H, no, there's no H because it's a soft breathing. Om, O-M-N-U-M-I. Omnumi, or omnumi accent there. 
which also is deployed in Hebrews 3.11, another time where God swore an oath. I swore by myself they will not enter my rest. I don't want to hear that one if I was the people he was talking about. Swore an oath then as omnumi, which is also deployed in Hebrews 3.11, 3.18, and 4.3. And this deals in every case with God's oath that the Exodus generation would not enter into his rest, which was specifically defined there as a land called Canaan in which they'd enjoy prosperity and freedom and freedom to worship and all the things that the original pilgrims to America wanted. In 6.13 of Hebrews, God's oath that accompanied his promise to Abraham. So here again, we have another oath and a promise. An oath accompanied a promise to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. The word oath is mentioned twice in Hebrews 6.13 for emphasis. In Hebrews 6.16 and 17, the noun form of omnumi is orkos, and that's O-R-K-O-S, orkos, for oath, is joined with promise, so that it says, by two immutable things. Immutable things means unchangeable things. Things amatathaton cannot be changed. God's unconditional promise. Now I say unconditional because for a promise to be unchangeable, it has to be unconditional. God's unconditional promise and God's oath that Jesus is archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. So there was an oath and a promise, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed, meaning in your seed, which Paul explains to be Christ in Galatians 3:15 and 16, singular seed, all the nations, that means all humanity, the pleroma of the nations as we have it in Hebrews, rather in Romans 11:24 24 and 25, all the nations will be blessed, God gave an oath to support that unconditional promise. God gave an oath that supported a kind of a negative promise. They aren't going to enter in my land. They're not going to enter into that rest. You know why? It's simply because God, thank God, does not reward unbelief, inattentiveness, unintelligence, irresponsibility, unreasonableness, and unlovingness. He doesn't reward it. Thank God. That means evil can't prevail in history. Thank God. Thank the Lord. So all the evil you see around you has an end. It has no substance in itself anyways. So to fear something that has no real substance is a false fear. But we'll go on. In Hebrews 6, 16 and 17... And we're going to go to Hebrews 6 because we're going to look at the end of the section that we're about to begin. God's unconditional promise and God's oath is that Jesus is to be archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. 
And what that means for you and for me is found in Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, which I've translated now and will no doubt tweak and fix this translation, modify it and correct it along the way. Hebrews 6.18 says that through two unchangeable things, in neither of which God is capable of lying, he's not capable of lying with his promises, he's not capable of lying with his oaths or any of his oracles, that through two unchangeable things, in neither of which God is capable of lying, we who have fled for refuge. Now think of A.D. 70, people that have fled Jerusalem for refuge outside of Jerusalem because of the judgment coming on the stone temple and therefore on the system of sacrifices offered in that temple. Picture people fleeing for refuge outside the camp, outside the city, outside the gate where Christ is to, to suffer his reproach throughout all the world. So that's coming up too, but I don't want to go too deep into that. Through two unchangeable things in verse 18, in neither of which God is capable of lying, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. That's what Hebrews is all about, strong encouragement. It's the confessions of a Christ supremacist for sure, and it's with the result of strong encouragement to hold fast. Does that sound familiar? Verse 18, to hold fast the hope set before us. The hope that we have is, is an objective hope. It's laid out for us in the scripture. It's not some vague hope that we have. Well, I hope everything's going to be all right. It is going to be all right, but it's a hope that's set out before us in the scriptures. When we see Jesus, we see this hope. We see our destiny. So again, that through two unchangeable things, and neither of which God is, is capable of lying, he has absolute veracity, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. And that hope is set before us as a promise from God. Verse 19, which hope we have as a secure and certain anchor for our soul. Now, it doesn't say this, this metaphor is a nautical metaphor, but he kind of breaks off from it and mix, mixes his metaphor now. Hope that enters into this very sanctuary, he says, or the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain. That's the curtain that separates the heavenly holy place from the holiest place, the place of utmost holiness. So which hope we have as an anchor a secure and certain anchor for our soul. Hope that enters into the very sanctuary behind the curtain, meaning Jesus is that hope. Right where a forerunner has, now we have the archegos, the Aetios, the Archieros, the great archpriest, the source of salvation, the founder of our salvation is now the forerunner. Where a forerunner has entered for our benefit. This is a benevolent Christology. Then I love this word, Jesus. Who has become archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. So 
You see the bracket here, 510, ends with Christ as high priest or archpriest after the order of Melchizedek. You see this as bracketed with 620, where Christ is mentioned again. Jesus is mentioned again as a forerunner who's already, what, passed through the heavens, through the veil of his own torn flesh, into the holiest place of all, where he appears for us as our forerunner. So the bracket we have... How do you then identify the structure of an epistle? By seeing sections. And I don't just look at a structural manual and say, oh, this is a structure that so-and-so built for Hebrews. I'm going to go by it. No, I'd rather go through Hebrews and as we go, identify the structure. So I identify here an identifiable part of Hebrews, a significant section of Hebrews by the bracket between 5.10 and 6.20. So really we could say from 5.11 to 6.19 we have a preparatory exhortation that's filled with all kinds of wonderful warnings. But warnings that have been often misunderstood and characteristically throughout the ages really butchered as far as their meaning. And so I'm asking for the prayers of those of you that are continuing this study with me that We'll get it right when we go through here. So he alludes to the promise and the oath that accompanies the designation of Jesus as a priest for the age like Melchizedek, a promise and an oath. Because this designation is a promise and an oath or supported by an oath of God, Jesus' archpriesthood is immutably certified by God. And so is the age-abiding salvation that he won for us. And so our hope of salvation to the uttermost and reward for maintained confidence, listen to this carefully, our reward for maintained confidence in God's fidelity is an immovable anchor rendering our souls stable during this clash or agona of the ages. Let me say that again. Because this designation of Jesus as great archpriest for the age like Melchizedek is immutably certified by God and assured by God, then so is the age-abiding salvation that Jesus won for us. And so is our hope firm and secure. Our hope of salvation to the uttermost is secure. But also we have a hope of reward for the maintained confidence in God's fidelity. In other words, there is a reward that follows upon and results from our maintained fidelity, our confidence in God's faithfulness. That is a reward not forthcoming for those who do not hold fast this confidence. And so this becomes an immovable anchor, rendering our souls stable during this clash of the ages, this agona of the ages. And so the prayer that we pray, don't let us crack under the pressure of this agona, which is usually translated as lead us not into temptation, whatever that means, don't let us crack under the pressure. We pray this for our, I pray this for my grandchildren. Whatever they have to go through, Father, don't let them crack under the pressure. Give them the bread 
of the Messianic banquet, a little of it today. Don't let them crack under the pressure of the adversities they'll face as young men in this upcoming clash of the ages, in the upcoming history of our country, the unfolding history of our times. Don't let them fall prey to the evil one. Keep them from the evil one, from his devices. Keep them separate from the snares of the cosmos. And let your kingdom come into their lives, the righteousness, joy, and peace of your kingdom. And let your will be done on earth in their earthly lives as your will is done in heaven and is done uninterruptedly in future world. You can pray this for all of us. We can pray it for our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. And therefore, three things. One, we may be absolutely assured that the Exodus generation did not enter God's rest, the land of Canaan, because God never rewards rebellion. That's good news. He never rewards disobedience, inattentiveness to his word and spirit. So this should actually be a comfort to us as well as a balance to the fact that God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. We should never take that as God justifying ungodliness. He doesn't. Or nor should we think that God rewards infidelity. He doesn't. In fact, Hebrews 13, 4 makes a very strong point of the fact that God judges adulterers and prostitute users or whatever, whoremongers, whatever people want to call it. God judges sexual immorality. He just does. And so we shouldn't take for granted that God's justification of the ungodly in Romans 4, 5 means that he justifies ungodliness. That's a non sequitur. It doesn't work. Second thing of the three things. Two, we may be absolutely assured that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham's seed or Christ because God's promise was accompanied by an oath. Galatians 3.15 and 16, I refer you there, along with Genesis 22.16 to 18, with this important note also. It's important to note that this absolute assurance was conveyed to Abraham only after he had persevered in faith to the point where he offered his son Isaac, as we know. Hebrews 6.12 compared with Hebrews 11.2-40, especially Hebrews 11.17. So it's important to note that this absolute assurance was conveyed to Abraham only after he had persevered in faith. And that's important because Hebrews is a call to persevere in faith. Third thing of three things. We may absolutely be assured that Jesus is an archpriest for the age. And that means until we are saved to the uttermost. Because of the two immutable things. One, God's promise. And two, God's oath. That Yahweh swore and will not retract. You 
are a priest for the age like Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4. So the oracle also has the character of a promise because he declared a priest for the age in perpetuity or forever. Forever? Yes. But again, when it is arguable, it's, uh, this is an arguable point. When will God become all in all? And when he does become all in all, will there any longer be need for a priest? Then we will have been saved to the uttermost and Jesus will have fulfilled his priestly task of intercession for us for the age. So again, that's just a question. And we'll leave it up in the air like a pinata and you can swing away at it. In any case, we may see pretty clearly here that a significant section of this homily may be identified and bracketed by Hebrews 5.10 and 6.20. And so 5.11 through 6.19 is an identifiable division within the homily and deserves treatment as a separate but also connected section. This oath and oracle was pronounced by God, by Yahweh, the Father, to the same person to whom God said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2.7, Hebrews 1.5, Hebrews 5.5. And to whom God also said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Psalm 110.1b. Septuagint 1091b, Hebrews 113, 10.13, and implied in 12.2 and other places. So the son is the king, like David, and he's the priest for the age, like Melchizedek. Jesus, who is superior to the angels, to Moses, and to Joshua, is also superior to Aaron and all the archpriests of the Levitical order whose time as archpriests was over on the occasion of their deaths. Dying ended their vocation. In one sense, Jesus' death began his vocation, but we'll toss that around in a moment. Now you say, you left off something about the order of the, of the items in Christ's, the Christ event. No, I didn't. I'm coming back to it. Like a famous press secretary has recently said, we'll circle back. We're circling back. Now we're going to get back to the items of the Christ event. Now regarding this Christ event, Kevin McRudin wrote, and I wrote, read two of his books on Hebrews, both excellent Kevin McCruden wrote the following. Few texts in the New Testament offer a more theologically complex appraisal of the Christ event than the letter to the Hebrews. Fewer still cultivate the concept of perfection. Now, I put a bracket there and I put completion because, again, Hebrews is all about completion. Fewer still cultivate the concept of, we'll say, completion. 
as deliberately as does Hebrews, in working out the implications of Christ's death for both the person of Jesus and the identity of the believer. So, slightly later, Kevin McCruden added, quote, the author of Hebrews applies perfection terminology directly to Jesus three times in the letter. And he mentions 2.10 and 5.9, where we are now, and there's a remarkable connection. Check it out yourself in the English Bible if you want, Greek if you want, 2.10 and 5.9. But he also uses perfection terminology, or I'd rather call it completion terminology, to Jesus in Hebrews 7.28. So let's enumerate the general elements of the Christ event again in a revised chronological order. We've looked at it, but there's a slight revision I want to make today in the chronological order in which, or at least the logical order, in which the original nine elements are now ten elements due to the splitting of item six into six and seven. Now, I'm referring you back to notes from previous increments. And the we used to have six, item six, but we split it into six and seven of the ascension and the entry of Jesus into the heavenly holy of holies as two items with a decided emphasis for Hebrews on item seven, which is his entry into the holy of holies by his own blood, effectively with his own blood. Say that again, with his own blood, effectively speaking. So here's the ten items or features, or we could say sub-events of the Christ event. One, the incarnation of the eternal word, also known as the eternal son made flesh. Two, and we'll give lots of scriptural references for that in print. Two, the earthly Lifelong obedience of the Son made flesh, obedience that culminated in three, the passion of the Son, the crucifixion, and the death of the Son, the offering of himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit. Four, his burial, and then five, his resurrection from the dead, when the God of peace brought him up and out of the realm of the dead. Six, his ascension, which includes his passage through the heavens. Seventh, we emphasize this picture, bold font. His entry into the Holy of Holies by his own blood, which means effectively with his own blood. Eight, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, ostensibly, and for now, we'll assume that his sitting down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens followed his entry into the Holy of Holies by his own blood, or effectively with his own blood, which the Old Testament would have understood as being sprinkled against the mercy seat. And we have the sprinkled blood of Jesus referred to in Hebrews 12, 24. So ninth, 
he was crowned as the great king of the heavenly Jerusalem, and I think we can say that this is kind of a back-to-back event, designated as a priest or archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. In other words, he was designated as great archpriest or archpriest after the order of Melchizedek only after he completed his action as a priest by his entry into the Holy of Holies by or effectively with his own blood. And then 10, which really may not even figure into the Christ event, but I kind of put it in there just to give a sense of continuity. The 10th sub-event is his post-resurrection appearances. Now, Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Was there in Jesus' presentation of himself to Paul an indication that perhaps somehow he was this great archpriest as well as king? I don't know. But it's interesting from the standpoint of Estheus's hypothesis that Paul both endorsed the PT who wrote Hebrews and endorsed the content of Hebrews, this homily, and in fact enclosed it in an envelope and sent it under his own authorization. So we'll say 10th, his post-resurrection appearances in which Paul was one of those in which he may have detected a hint that Jesus was the archpriest, and he only hints at it in his epistles. So therefore, the importance of Hebrews in not only hinting at it, but centering in it, which is also another way of saying Jesus and him crucified. So regarding completion is interesting because in Hebrews 6.1, The Bible goes on to say, and the PT urges, as I do, let us go on to completion. And what that means is let us go on to a realization as much as is possible in this age and in this earthly life, during this clash of the eons, let us go on to completion. Jesus' completion means his conformity to the human situation minus sins, followed by his solidarity with all of humanity. There is a salvific solidarity of all humanity, which is under attack by all the cancel culture of our time, which wants to chop us up and separate us into racial groups and ethnic groups and gender classes, etc. Artificial classifications. So Jesus was completed by his solidarity, salvific solidarity with all of humanity, which meant he had to be saved. And when he was saved, all were saved. So our completion, our com- now do you believe this? I'll ask you that question. Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus needed to be saved? Do you believe that the one who died was justified? Do you believe that when he was saved, we were all saved? Do you believe this? Well, If you don't, then give me a basis for why you don't. If you do, I hope you got a basis to reveal why you do. In any case, our completion means our conformity into Christ's image, the image of the Lord. And that's a process that begins now with, you guessed it, attentiveness to the Word and the Spirit.
attentiveness to the word and the spirit. Now, what I'm going to do now is give, again, I like to use this overused metaphor. Let's lay some tracks so that we have a place for our locomotive to go in the very near future in our following increments. Now, since I recently found out that one of my most cherished partners in theology, Robert Michael Duran, and I say that that partner by kind of tongue-in-cheek because I've never met him, but I've certainly read him and plan to read much more of his theology, and by the grace of God, I want to quote something that he said in one of the most remarkable trilogies I've ever seen is the Trinity in History, which he did on the Divine Missions, the Divine Processions, and the one apparently at the printer right now of the Redemption of History. And I want to quote from the Trinity in History under Section 4 in Volume 1, and it's called Levels of Consciousness. We looked at that pretty heavily back in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. But in chapter 6, he has a a chapter entitled Functional Specialties for a World Theology. And I believe that he kind of laid the path for a future theology that is going to be marvelous and have great effects, soteriological effects and societal effects in our future. But he says in this this volume, in its thesis 20, and I want to read, Reiterated, if I've quoted it before, he says, the social dimensions of grace are rooted in a level of consciousness that is beyond the four levels of experience, understanding, judgment, and decision, and that sublates them. This unitive and inclusive level of consciousness is interpersonal, and when self-transcendent, It is marked by love in intimacy, in devotion to human community, and in reception of God's love and the return of love for God in charity. The functional specialty horizons will include this dimension in its mediated subject. That's really a technical thesis. And I could probably take five or six messages in order to bring about my understanding of it and to say nothing of convey that understanding to you all. But the point is, there is a level of consciousness on which we live in which there is an intimacy of love. And it surpasses all of the levels on which there can be biases, group biases, general bias of the omnicompetence of common sense, etc., and racial interpretations of society and history and psychology. There is a level above that sublates all other levels and involves an intimacy of love that recognizes the solidarity of all humanity in Jesus Christ, who is the founder of universal salvation and the source of age-abiding salvation. And as we obey him, we experience this love in intimacy. And it's an inclusive realm of the consciousness. And it's the only cure for what ails our presently ailing society. But all this is not going to be realized if you and I 
and those who call themselves believers in Jesus Christ have a nonchalance toward Bible doctrine, a nonchalance about attentiveness to the Word of God, biblical teaching. Nonchalance or apathy or indifference or I guess I got to get this out of the way so I can do other things today. That's nonchalance and apathy and indifference. You, don't, you shouldn't expect to get anything out of a message if that's how you view the message. In fact, it'd be better not to even listen to the message. Got to get this out of the way. I got to get my calisthenics out of the way. That's, that's one thing. But the Word of God can't be viewed that way. Nonchalance about attentiveness to the Word of God leads to spiritual drifting and even mental drifting. Drifting to compromise. Compromise to apostasy. Apostasy to disaster. That only, that only not only works with individuals, but with groups, with churches, with movements. Now, Ernst Kosman considered Hebrews 5.11 to 6.12. And again, this is all preparation for this section we're about to enter. Ernst Kosman considered Hebrews 5.11 to 6.12 to be a preparation for a what he called a logos, L-O-G-O-S, a logos, teleos, T-E-L, E-I-O-S, teleos. The church in America better be ready for a logos teleos. The telestai phalanx better be ready for a logos teleos. And you are. And I think you have been. It's one thing to consider Jesus Christ and him crucified from its basic standpoint of the finished work of Christ. It's another thing to have a creative elaboration of Jesus Christ and him crucified that takes in a more mature understanding. If we're not moving to a more mature understanding, we're drifting away and we're almost finding to be boring the initial insights we've had. The only way to carry the initial insight that we've had to a completion that involves reward is to have initial insights elaborated and added to by deeper, advanced insights and enlightenment of the Word of God. You have to make ourselves available to that and make a priority out of it. I would even say that the measure that you make a priority out of it is the measure to which you're going to grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and in which you're going to have impact that lasts not only through time, and for your family and community, but into future world with ripples that go on and on and on. So he called this Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 12. Now, he identified this section as going from 5, 11 to 6, 12. He said it was a preparation for a logos teleos. Logos teleos I would say, means a mature doctrine. Or we might say a doctrine for the mature. The original founders of our country 
wrote the Constitution, and they recognized that the Constitution would be useless if there were not a corresponding virtue in the people of the nation corresponding to the virtue of the Constitution. Likewise, there's no spiritual growth unless there is a corresponding conversions, corresponding conversions happening in the listeners to Scripture that corresponds to the virtues of the Scripture and to the virtues, really, of Jesus Christ. And so, in one way, it's hard to argue with Kosman, who said that this is a preparation for a mature word. In fact, I would agree with it. But I would also say that it may even be better to consider the more extended section from 5.11 all the way through 6.20, as I've already alluded to, as such a preparation. The section into which we've entered is bracketed by an inclusio. And whenever there's an inclusio, there's the assumption of a chiasmas or a kind of chi-shaped structure. Hebrews, and I'm going to close with this, so don't get bogged down in this and don't think I'm going on and on forever with this and this message. I'm going to close because this is all just, again, laying of tracks for our speedy locomotive. So there is an inclusio here. Hebrews 5.10, archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. Hebrews 6.20, archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. A section of scripture. So between Hebrews 5.10 and 6.20, there is the preparation of the reader's hearers. Now I say hearers because Hebrews was written to be read publicly and aloud out loud in a congregation. And so it is a preparation of the readers slash hearers for the mature doctrine of the age-abiding Melchizedekan archpriesthood of Jesus Christ. And that means all of its implications, all of its applications, all that that means to you and me in the agona. What Kazaman called a preparation I called a tune-up in our last, in our increment a few times ago, 131 I think it was. A mature word, or we could simply call it a doctrine, which is a theological functional specialty in itself, can only be handled and understood by mature students. So we're dealing here with the theological functional specialty of foundations. That's a theological functional specialty foundations now they're not what you think foundations is not what you think we're dealing with foundations and that has to do not with doctrines per se or even with theology per se but with the students of theology or theologians in other words with you and me what has to happen inside of us conversions wrought by the Spirit and the Word that gives birth to understanding and insight. Foundations has to do then with the students of theology or theologians, with the subjects who are studying or are going through this theological exegesis of Hebrews. People who do and who live theology, in other words, do I recommend that we go through DLT again? 
Do I recommend that you read the notes to it? Sure. Do I recommend that you read the notes to Romans, Doctrines, Justification? Absolutely. Just read the notes to it if you want something to do. These are all helpful. These, these things are written so that you can review them. When I die, I hope some people have these notes. I hope my grandchildren have these notes to read and study when they're men, when they're young men, or when they're, even when they're old men. And I hope that they innovate from them and go way beyond them. But I hope they take them and their benefits. So foundations has to do with conversions that occur in the students of the word. In this case, the students of Hebrews and of a theological exegesis of Hebrews. So guess what? We're going to have to review, I think at least a little bit. I won't say we're going to have to. I think we might have to review the conversions. There are four, thanks to the scholarship of Bernard J.F. Lonergan, Robert Michael Duran, and Ben F. Myers, those four are, they call them, intellectual conversion, moral conversion, religious conversion, and psychic conversion, one developed by Duran. But I think we can get a lot of grain at this mill. I think we can find a lot of good things on these. We can also review the theological functional specialties. And there are many things that we can review on our quest for understanding of the great archpriesthood of Christ. But what I want to do first, instead of reviewing the various categories of conversions, intellectual, moral, religious, and lately per Duran, psychic, I want to concern ourselves, rather, with an exegesis of this next section, which will begin with our next increment, hopefully, or a future one anyways, beginning with the understanding that it is a vital section of this homily designed to cultivate the ground, as it were, to receive the seed of this mature word. Now, the PT has broken off the discussion of Jesus as archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek, after a tantalizing introduction. This is not done without forethought on his part, though. It's not like, oh, i got to break off and do this. Rather, Hebrews is a homily and has all the features of a spoken sermon, but it also was nevertheless meticulously designed with this section in mind as a crucial cog in the machinery. And so... I want you to understand that from 5.11 through 6.20 or through 2.6.20, we've got a preparatory word. And I think it's most essential and most important. It's going to involve one of the most difficult to understand and interpret passages. I speak of Hebrews 6.4 through 8 especially. Now, you have everything there from people saying it's just a hypothetical case to people saying it's a, there's a time when you can make a decision to absolutely apostatize from God and he won't restore you and that leads to eternal consequences and that means damnation. So there's all kinds of ways to view this thing and there's all kinds of ways that it has been viewed 
and I think sometimes abusively, and caused abuse on those listeners to the preachers who have abused them through false interpretations. So we're going to take a look at it much, much, much more clearer, and I want you all to keep praying, not only for me, but for yourselves, that you'll receive understanding, and that the entrance or the exposition of the word in Hebrews, specifically for our own time, will give understanding to the simple and make wise the naive so that we can conduct our lives by the grace of God and that our lives can have impact not only in time but all the way into future world. I want you to have rewards and I want your rewards to be realized after a life of holding fast to the hope that's been set before us, an objective hope laid out for us in the scriptures not least in Hebrews. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you have afforded us and you keep on affording them so far under your grace. You've allowed us to keep on through a kind of an unusual year here. And though to us it's not unusual because it's the usual, continuing in your word with even more fervor and more attentiveness than ever before. And so, Father, we pray that you'll inculcate us in the word of truth, in this logos teleos. Not only us, but that you'll do this for the whole church of the firstborn that's still living in this age and in this time in history. That you'll allow us to enter into that level of consciousness where we experience the intimacy of love and the solidarity of Jesus Christ with all of humankind. May the salvific solidarity that is realizable in Christ be realized by more and more people in order to deliver us from the culture of hatred, the culture of divisiveness, the culture of segregation of people into chopped up, polarized, and fragmented groups, which would result ultimately in the dissolution of our nation and the dissolution, really, of Western civilization. So we're asking some big things of you, Father, but you're a big God. And we are asking in the name of Jesus Christ, our great archpriest, whom you designated to be so by an oracle supported by an oath. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.